Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. Hope you're having a great summer. And the, this podcast should probably drop right before Tisha B'Av. So I want to make sure to wish all listeners who are observing the holiday an easy and meaningful fast. This week, we're going in focus, where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss financial planning for Orthodox Jewish families. There's nothing average about a from lifestyle. By way of background, the financial planning process is unique for every individual, though there are some common themes that reappear within certain demographics. This is particularly true when it comes to planning for Orthodox Jewish families. It's important to plan with these nuances in mind, and this program will dive into many of these topics and themes and offer practical solutions. Okay, first, let's spend some time to understand this Orthodox Jewish demographic. I'm going to highlight their pain points and unique lifestyle and the various themes that continuously come up. So what is an Orthodox Jew? In short, an Orthodox, Orthodox Judaism advocates a strict observance of Jewish law. Key practices are observing the Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night and eating kosher food. In the Orthodox Jewish community, money plays an important part in ensuring that families can maintain their religious and cultural lifestyle, as well as pass on traditions to the next generation. I have intentionally decided not to use the phrase the average Orthodox Jewish family because there's no such thing as average. The Orthodox community varies just like every other community. However, there are definitely common themes that come up repeatedly. Spending some time to understand these themes is an essential first step to proper advice to this demographic. So now let's talk about some of these themes. First is high housing costs. While housing prices vary significantly based on location, it's generally true that predominantly Orthodox Jewish areas tend to be more expensive than their surroundings. The reason for this is that observant Jews look for neighborhoods that have the infrastructure in which they can easily maintain their lifestyle. This may include the need to easily purchase kosher food at the local market, uh, being in close proximity to a ritual bath called a mikvah, having an era, which is a ritual enclosure, and most importantly, being walking distance to a synagogue since Orthodox Jews do not drive on the Sabbath. The desirability of living in a community with these resources causes housing demand to rise, which results in home prices that are higher than in other nearby neighborhoods that don't have the same Jewish infrastructure. There's the cost of kosher food. Purchasing kosher food and maintaining a kosher home is not cheap. There are strict requirements for how kosher food like chicken and meat is prepared. The process must be also be supervised appropriately. And the costs associated with this process and the oversight cause kosher food prices to be higher than the non-kosher equivalents. Additionally, a large component of the Jewish lifestyle, similar to other cultures, revolves around gathering around the table and sharing a delicious meal. However, where the Jewish community may diverge from others, is that the celebration occurs weekly on the Sabbath. To put this into perspective for my non-Jewish audience, imagine having a Thanksgiving feast twice every week, once on Friday night and once on Saturday for lunch. Not only is the preparation time consuming, but the cost can also get quite high. 
As an aside, this preparation for the Sabbath is also why after Friday afternoon is generally not the greatest time to call your Orthodox Jewish clients, since they're oftentimes in the midst of preparing for the equivalent of two Thanksgiving feasts. Jewish holidays, building on the point about food during the fall Jewish holiday season, which is generally September or October, depending on the year, people tend to have large meals with family and friends. There are various holiday requirements, which will cause expenses to add up. Advisors should be aware of this spike in expenses for planning purposes. The holiday of Passover in particular, which takes place in the early spring, can be especially expensive because religious Jews adhere to strict guidelines which require them to rid their pantry and refrigerator of most food used during the rest of the year and buy new food that is strictly supervised and appropriate for the holiday of Passover. It's worth noting that there's a plethora of charitable organizations in the Jewish community that help assist families who are financially struggling with, with putting food on the table. It's rare to find a family who's going hungry in the Jewish community because there are thankfully many, many organizations dedicated to supporting those in need in an extremely dignified way. Now would probably be a good time to bring up social pressures, which will come up a few more times throughout this talk. Every community has social pressures that may cause an individual to make bad financial decisions. This is true in the Orthodox community as well. And I could go on about this topic forever and have written extensively about it. But just to give attendees a flavor, I'll give some examples to understand when these pressures arise most frequently. During the holiday season, particularly the holiday of Sukkot and Passover, it's common for some families to want to go away to a hotel where most of the holiday preparation can be done for you. The food is prepared, the rooms are all clean, religious services are organized, and entertainment is provided. If all your friends are going away for Passover, it's natural for some folks to feel left out, and they may want to splurge and go on vacation that they can't actually afford. Another example is when it comes to investing. As I always tell my clients, personal finance is personal. Don't let what your friend is doing influence your own decisions. There are obviously many other examples of the social pressure, but these are just two that come up most often. Another consideration is marriage and children. Orthodox Jews tend to get married on the earlier side. The table illustrates that nearly 50% of modern Orthodox Jews get married before the age of 24. Apparently, I was an old maid when I got married at the ripe old age of 27. This younger age of marriage has obvious consequences when it comes to financial planning. For example, these folks may be less settled in their career or still in university or graduate school, which obviously has an impact on cash flow. Furthermore, child, uh, children may come into the picture earlier than the average population, which would necessitate getting proper insurance coverage at a younger age. In terms of children, according to data from Statista in 2022, there was an average of 1.94 children under the age of 18 per family in the United States. This is different from Orthodox Jewish families. According to data from the Pew Institute, Orthodox Jewish community has approximately 4.1 children per household. Naturally, there are financial implications of a larger family structure, which present their own unique set of challenges. And here's a quick pro tip. Don't ever ask an Orthodox Jewish family how many children they plan to have. In certain communities, this may be discussed openly. However, in Jewish communities, there's an element of modesty when it comes to family planning, and these types of projections will likely not be discussed openly. A topic related to children is yeshiva tuition. Every parent on this call understands that kids are expensive. We don't need to go into all the cost of raising kids, but for this topic, it's important to understand the additional costs associated with Jewish elementary and high school. 
These Jewish schools are called yeshivas. As you would see from the table, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox parents find it important to send their kids to Jewish schools. Yeshivas typically teach both secular and religious studies, and the cost may vary substantially based on the school and the geographic location. However, to give you a sense, I have clients that pay between $15,000 to $25,000 for elementary school and $30,000 to $55,000 for high school, and that cost is per child. I will say that again, that cost is tuition for one child every year. Let's run the math just to hit this point home. If a family has four kids, as per the Pew Research average, two are in elementary school at $25,000 a year per child, and two are in high school at $40,000 a year per child. This means that par parents need to pay $130,000 per year or more in tuition costs, and that is with after-tax dollars. I won't even discuss camp because the extra tens of thousands of dollars here is just a rounding error to what I just mentioned. Obviously, for a family that has several children, these expenses can become very quite can become quite onerous and can impact other areas of life. Let's keep going. So after senior year in high school, it's common for many Orthodox kids to take a gap year in Israel primarily engaged strictly in religious study. These programs also vary in price and what they offer. In my experience, tuition may be in the range of $25,000 to $35,000 a year, not including flights, transportation costs, and spending money, which can be another $1,000 a month. Many of these programs will offer a college credit depending on the institution and the university the student will end up attending when they return to the States. Again, it's important to point out that there is financial assistance with yeshivas in the United States, and those in Israel during the gap year as well. However, the financing options are much more limited than for college planning. In terms of career paths, this also varies. However, as the folks on this call can now appreciate, pursuing a high income job can be immensely helpful. Talking from personal experience, many of my friends from synagogue are professionals or own their own business. Oftentimes these types of careers require more schooling, which has cost consequences that must be planned for. Furthermore, just because an individual has a high paying career that does remove all the financial stresses from their lives due to lifestyle creep, which is inflating one's lifestyle as they make more money. So their expenses increase in lockstep with their income. More money doesn't necessarily mean more financial breathing room. It's also very important to note that not everyone in the Orthodox Jewish community is a high earner. Many people are not making enough money and these families need proper planning as well. And finally, there are also halakhic considerations to be aware of. Halakhic just means Jewish law, and many Orthodox clients would like to handle their finances just like they handle the rest of their life, which is within a Jewish context. For example, there's Jewish framework for how to give tzedakah or charity, estate planning, borrowing, even investing has some guidelines, and I'll touch on some of these points a bit later. If you look at the data table, being Jewish is extremely important to virtually all Orthodox Jews. It's infused into every aspect of their lives and the planning needs to start there. This life philosophy reminds me of a um, initial meeting I had with a Muslim client. After discussing an investment strategy, he told me in no uncertain terms that he does not want to invest in forbidden goods and services, which typically include sin stocks involved in the business of alcohol, tobacco, pornography, and pork products. He told me that this was against his values and investing within this framework was far more important than his performance. Similarly, accumulating the most amount of wealth is probably far less important to most, most Orthodox Jews than being able to live 
a Jewish lifestyle. In that vein, I found that an important first step is to have the clients draft an investment policy statement to help them define their overarching goals. It should include a list of lifestyle decisions that are of utmost importance to them. It should also specify where they're okay making trade-offs and cutting expenses. Clients should start this process simply with a black blank sheet of paper with two columns. And this may sound elementary, but it's extremely effective. On one side, it should include what is important in their lives, and the other side it should include what is not. Example of what is important may include buying a home in a Jewish community, sending their kids to yeshivas, making sure their kids can spend the gap year in Israel eating kosher food, supporting their local Jewish community, and may also include other things that are not necessarily Jewish, such as being able to retire by age 65 or leaving a legacy behind to their children. Examples of things that may not be important to their lifestyle may include driving luxury cars, living in a large home, going out to eat, buying clothes every year, streaming Netflix. Every list will be different, even if the clients are within the same demographic. No two clients have the exact same preferences. When the two lists are made, I like to ask my clients to prioritize each list, meaning rank the things that they do want to achieve from the most important to the least important. And this exercise is particularly instructive. One thing I often see is clients rank sending their kids to yeshiva towards the top of their list and saving for college all the way at the bottom of their list of priorities. The reason for this is not because Orthodox Jewish families don't value higher education. That couldn't be further from the truth. However, there are many financing options when it comes to higher education. There are various types of scholarships, student aid, taking out loans, and choosing a cheaper university. With yeshivas, on the other hand, fewer options are available, and that is why college savings is much lower in terms of importance. The same ranking can be done on the, for the not important list. For example, watching Netflix may not be important, but it's something you enjoy far more than buying a new Lexus, which can rank lower on the list. After the ranking, it's time to cut out the activities that are unimportant to your client's life and reallocate these resources to spend on things that are important. The result is what I refer to as living your rich life. This is optimizing your client's cash flows so their hard-earned dollars are going towards things that are important to them instead of wasting it on things that don't enhance their life. After all, money is not a scorecard. Rather, it's a tool to help clients achieve the life that they want. Ultimately, this whole exercise in creating an IPS is about aligning a client's money with their values. Once your client has determined their rich life, they should also be mindful of the blow strategies here to maximize their cash flow. As planners know, cash flow is really the cornerstone of financial planning. So the first is don't overextend yourself. This typically comes up with buying a home or a new car. When it comes to housing, I always tell my clients to use the following guideline. Make sure they can put at least 25% down payment and ensure that their monthly housing expenses are not more than 30% of their net household income. This may seem restrictive. However, given the expensive lifestyle, getting this purchase right, which is one of the biggest and most important, can be the difference between living comfortably or worrying about how you're going to pay your bills. Remember, as clients' income rises, they can always expand their home or buy a new one if done sensibly. However, they shouldn't get ahead of themselves and risk financial hardship later. When it comes to automobiles, this is a little bit more flexible. A home may need to be in a certain community. However, the main purpose of purchasing an automobile is to get from point A to point B. It's tempting for some people to lose sight of that fact and their car purchase becomes a vanity item. If cash flow is an issue, then financing, leasing, or buying a luxury vehicle should not happen. 
this can have a very meaningful and unnecessary negative impact on one's cash flow and hurt their ability to spend their money on things that are far more important. One of the most overlooked financial planning strategies for Jewish families is to relocate to a cheaper area. This suggestion applies to both young married couples just starting their lives as well as retirees. There is a tendency to want to live near New York City, Los Angeles, or Miami, where there are tons of Jewish infrastructure. However, in the year 2023, there are numerous Orthodox Jewish communities all around the country. This includes Michigan, Texas, Nebraska, Colorado, and many, many states and cities where the cost of living is substantially cheaper. While an advisor may not be able to insist that a client relocate, it's an extremely important part of the planning discussion that comes up often in my own practice. Younger clients may not have decided where they want to settle down, and older clients are looking for where they can spend the next phase of their life. A cheaper locale may be the most impactful way to help maximize one's cash flow. Next is insurance planning. When it comes to insurance, doing a needs analysis to determine proper coverage is essential. However, given the fact pattern I've been describing, I can say with confidence that term insurance makes the most sense for many Orthodox families given their high expenses. And I could already hear the insurance professionals on this call shouting at the screen, saying this is not correct because there are instances where permanent insurance is essential. And I agree, there are cases where permanent insurance is the right solution. However, unless the client is above the federal or state exemption amount and few other exceptions, then term insurance is the way to go. It gets the clients the proper coverage for their family without the premiums being a major burden on their cash flow as they start their family. And finally, there's asset location. Asset location refers to a client where a client decides to put their money. Some investments should be held in taxable accounts while others should be held in tax advantage accounts. Furthermore, there are tax benefits associated with different types of accounts such as IRAs, profit sharing, 529 and HSAs. This topic can be its own webinar unto itself, which we won't cover in depth today. However, the ability to funnel a client's money into the correct accounts to achieve their goals while maximizing, minimizing their tax liability can be extremely beneficial to their cash flow as well. Now let's talk about investing, which is the meat and potatoes of my business. When it comes to investing, all the regular best practices apply to Orthodox Jews as they do with other clients. This includes constructing a portfolio that meets your client's goals, a focus on risk management, tax efficiency, and getting the big picture asset allocation correct. One area that I wanna emphasize though, is the behavioral side. And the reason for this is in any tight-knit community, the impacts of groupthink and peer pressure are very real. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs within a group of people in which the desire for harmony or conformity in the group results in irrational or dysfunctional decision-making outcome. For example, if all your friends from synagogue are investing in hot real estate deals, you may feel the need to conform and do the same thing, even if it makes no sense. If all your friends are investing in cryptocurrencies, you may feel the need to follow suit. From my own life as an Orthodox Jew, I can attest to the fact that this issue is widespread and is a major factor in why some Orthodox families do not make the most optimal investing decisions. <clears throat> Just because your friend from synagogue or brother-in-law suggests an investment to you does not make it sensible. As any experienced investor knows, one of the keys to successful investing is minimizing your mistakes. In other words, if you avoid losing a lot of money and consistently have small wins, you have a high probability of success. Some strategize to minimize these mistakes, overcome groupthink, and put your Jewish clients on a path to success 
include first, keep things simple. Stocks, bonds, and cash should be the only asset classes in 99% of investors' portfolios. Mutual funds or ETFs should be the vehicle of choice to obtain this exposure. To keep things boring, investing should be more similar to watching paint drive than a day at the racetrack. If your client's approach seems to be moving more to the racetrack analogy, then you are veering off course. You got to get the big picture correct. Determine your client's time horizon and structure their portfolio accordingly. Focus on getting the proper weightings to different asset classes, such as stocks, bonds, and cash correct. This drives most of an investor's return. Next, and this is super important, try to get your clients to embrace automation. The best way to overcome groupthink and any form of social pressure is to automate your investment process. This can seamlessly be set up within your 401k, where money goes into your investments every paycheck without any effort. It can also be set up for your taxable accounts with the help of your financial advisor. Finally, most Orthodox families should hire a financial advisor. Finding someone who doesn't have products to sell or strategies to push by his or her employer is key. Hiring an advisor is helpful for guiding clients through all these nuances and for mitigating the influence of peer pressure on your money. If a friend is trying to convince you of a particular investment, just blame your advisor and say, oh, my advisor doesn't permit those type of investments within my portfolio, and I adhere to his or her expertise. This may avoid many annoying and pointless conversations in the future. Thankfully, the recipe for financial success does not necessitate exciting investments, double-digit annualized returns, or your broke brother-in-law's input. The formula to build and maintain wealth is to spend less than you make invest your savings in a prudent and sensible manner, and ignore the noise. If you repeat this process for decades and take, the, take into consideration the points I just mentioned, your clients will be successful. Charitable giving is also a top priority for many Orthodox families, and advisors should be prepared to have at least a general discussion on the subject. First of all, charity in Hebrew is called tzedakah, so it's worth being familiar with that word. Second, the rule of thumb when it comes to giving tzedakah is to give ma'aser, which is 10%. The question then becomes 10% of what exactly? And similar to many things in life, the answer is it depends. As with many areas of Judaism, there are a variety of opinions that are all well thought out and have reliable sources. Since this is not a Jewish lecture on tzedakah, I'll tell you what I do, and I imagine that this will be sufficient, a sufficient starting point for many advisors to assist their clients. I personally give 10% of my net income after taxes. So this number is not net of my other expenses or my 401k contributions. It is also not net of my kids' yeshiva tuition costs, but there are many people who would say the number can be net of tuition. When in doubt on how to advise your clients on this subject, simply advise them to speak to the rabbi for religious guidance. Detailed religious questions on the subject of charity are a rabbi's domain, not yours, and that's perfectly okay. There also needs to be a framework for giving. I tell my Jewish and non-Jewish clients that just like you have a strategy for managing your money, there also must be a strategy in how you want to give it away. There are many rules regarding giving money away according to Jewish law and many books written on the subject. However, a general overview looks like this. The first priority is to give to your family in need. This is followed by giving locally to causes in your community, then give to charitable causes in Israel, then give to any other causes that are important to you. Naturally, every person has their own passions, which should be considered and will likely trump this methodology. That being said, in the event a Jewish client is not sure how to give, this framework can be instructive and a good starting point. 
Remember that creative charitable solutions still work for Jewish clients. Utilizing donor advised funds to bunch contributions, CRTs, QCDs, charitable gift annuities, and so many others are wonderful suggestions. Practitioners should not feel that they are limited in this regard when advising Jewish clients. Just to close out this topic, this framework and terminology are helpful when discussing, discussing philanthropy with Jewish clients. It's then up to the client to determine which organizations they'd like to contribute or leave a legacy to based on their own personal values. <clears throat> now let's move to retirement planning. Just like I've mentioned with previous topics, much of the same planning that takes place for other clients will take place for Jewish ones as they approach retirement. This includes planning for long-term care needs, mitigating sequence of returns risk, determining an optimal withdrawal strategy from a client's various accounts, social security claiming strategies, and others. However, there are some unique themes that consistently arise in retirement planning with my Orthodox Jewish clients, so let's discuss some of them. And the first is that high expenses still remain. While the cost of yeshiva tuition may be less relevant now, and I say less relevant because many yeshivas will, will request that grandparents help their children pay for their grandkids' education. The reality is the cost of living can still remain high. The need to eat kosher, celebrate the Sabbath and holidays, and live near a synagogue do not change. Additionally, the cost of healthcare rising as one ages should also fact be factored in as well. Living near children also comes up frequently. Jewish life is very centered around family and community. As time goes on, their friends from the community will move away to be near their kids, and your clients will likely follow this pattern. Understanding this dynamic is worth planning for well in advance. Moving to Israel, many Jews have the dream of living in Israel, if not full-time, then perhaps part-time. Needless to say, there is a lot of planning involved in such a move, and I would encourage all attendees to listen to my past webinar that discussed some tax and estate planning issues on this topic. While Israel has nationalized health care, which may remove some of the stress associated with long-term care planning, finding out the specifics on this and other issues is imperative. The issue of renting versus buying comes up often if a client wants to move to Israel as well. Many popular areas retiring Americans want to live in Israel have a more attractive rental market versus a buying market. Jumping to buy real estate in Israel and all its associated complications is not something that should be done on a whim. Anecdotally, I have many clients who split their time between the U.S. and Israel, and I manage their investment assets. This may be done for a variety of reasons, some of which may be that the U.S. has the safest and most robust capital market system in the world, and the fees associated with an investment advisory relationship are modest relative to other countries. Additionally, the accessibility from the U.S. to markets around the world is broad, and the advice I give relative to firms in other regions of the world may be far more robust and holistic in nature. If your clients are planning to move to Israel part or full-time, it's worth getting a specialist involved to advise them appropriately. Some practical solutions to these other issues include proactively downsizing. Large homes cost more to maintain than smaller ones. Aside from general upkeep costs, the property tax, insurance, and utilities can all be incredibly burdensome for retirees who are living on a fixed income. The sooner one downsizes, the better. The last thing anyone wants is to downsize during unfavorable circumstances. Proactively relocating to a locale where the cost of living is lower. I've brought this up a few times already, but there are plenty of Jewish communities around the country. Not every area costs the same as Long Island, Westchester, or Los Angeles. Retirees should take advantage of this geographic arbitrage. Working longer or part-time 
many clients will tell me that they want to retire, visit their grandkids, and spend the rest of their time attending religious lectures. The reality is none of these pursuits are full-time activities. I encourage many clients to continue working if possible. If it's not for the money, it's to keep them socially engaged, mentally sharp, and provide structure to their day. This is true for clients of all backgrounds, but I do have this conversation frequently with my Jewish clientele. The benefits of continuing to work are immense. Finally, let's touch on some Jewish estate planning concepts. This can also be an entire lecture unto itself, but in the essence of time, I'll just give you a high-level overview. According to Jewish law, there are specific guidelines of who inherits your assets. Some of these considerations include son and the son's male descendants inherit a person's estate. If there are no male heirs, your daughter can inherit the estate. If someone has no descendants at all, then his or her father and brothers can inherit. A husband inherits his wife's estate, but not vice versa. A male firstborn is entitled to a double portion. A widow is entitled to have her needs and living facilities provided for in her husband's estate for the rest of her life or until she's remarried. And unmarried daughters are entitled to support and maintenance from her dad father's estate. Before I get angry questions on how this can even be allowed, please know that I have never had a client follow this exact method of inheritance since a very simple solution is available through a combination of two documents. One, a will reflecting your intended distribution of your estate drafted in accordance with current civil law, and two, a document called a halakhic will or a Jewish will that creates a means of circumventing the biblical inheritance requirements without technically violating them, drafted in accordance with Jewish law. This general knowledge is sufficient, but just to get a bit in the weeds for just a second, the supplemental document is called a Shtar Chatsi Zahor, or a halachic will, which serves as a supplement to a secular will and is written by the testator, which records that a debt was made to an heir that takes effect an hour before death. A stipulation is made that the debt is waived if the heirs follow the rules of the secular will. The testator assumes a debt much greater than the expected size of the estate so that the heirs are motivated to honor the terms of the will for the debt to be waived. This debt is created by the testator accepting symbolic consideration. So for example, if a son is expecting to receive the entire estate and leave his sister with nothing, he will be faced with a large debt burden that is much larger than his actual inheritance. <clears throat> this will motivate him to relinquish his rights under Jewish law, and everyone will inherit according to the secular will. This is the type of situation where the client should seek out rabbinic guidance to make sure they're executing this document correctly. And a boilerplate document of a halakhic will can be found on the Baked In of America website, which I provided here. Other possible solutions to not violate the Jewish laws and still get your assets where you want them to go may include lifetime gifts, leaving life insurance and retirement benefits via beneficiary, utilizing irrevocable trust and titling accounts in a particular way so the assets pass directly to beneficiaries and not as an inheritance. Now to discuss just a few more related concepts. There's organ donation, donation of an organ from a living person to save another's life, where the donor's health will not appreciably suffer, is permitted and encouraged in Jewish law. Donation of an organ from a dead person is equally permitted for the same purpose. Healthcare proxy, a healthcare proxy in which you declare that all medical decisions should be in accordance with Jewish law and assign a specific rabbinic authority who is qualified to make these decisions. And a Jewish healthcare proxy can be found online on the website that I provided here. 
The important takeaway for advisors from this program is not necessarily to be an expert in all the intricacies of Jewish law and, and Jewish life in general. Rather, it's to be able to bring up these points to your Orthodox Jewish clients, plan accordingly, and suggest they speak to the religious authority when necessary. The ultimate job of the advisor is to understand the lifestyle, the themes, and spending patterns of your Jewish clients and put together a financial plan with them in mind. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.